what's going on with Moderna and put it in layman's terms to, to as much as you can and maybe yeah. even start with the bigger picture as in what is Moderna, the history of, what are they trying to accomplish and what we need to really look out for. Well, so let's start with the, the, the headline. If on March 28th, 2019, and let's get that date burned into our consciousness. If on March 28th, 2019, the following sentence was written in a patent application, quote, because of a concern for reemergence or a deliberate release of SARS coronavirus, vaccine development was initiated. That sentence was written into a patent application on March the 28th, 2019. And you heard what I said, vaccine development was, past tense, was initiated. So that means before March 28th, 2019, a deliberate release of SARS coronavirus was not only contemplated, but Moderna wrote it into their patent applications. Wow. Just let the chilling fact of what I just said sink in. Right? This is not a company that was operating in the conjecture theoretical world. This was not a company that was in the middle of this anonymous R&D program that was just happenstance to be running along looking at coronavirus. This was a patent application that had first been submitted in 2015. And the United States Patent Office had rejected it. You heard what I just said. They rejected the application, not once or twice, over and over and over again, they rejected this patent application. But on March the 28th, 2019, suddenly a SARS beta coronavirus specific vaccine and specifically not just SARS beta coronavirus, specifically the S1 spike protein, the thing that was allegedly novelly modified in December of 2019 in a bat cave in China, that was specifically referenced in March 2019. Now, keep in mind, and Brian, you know this, the company went public in 2018. This patent application was written March 28, 2019, which means around the time of the IPO, it is reasonable to assume that somebody knew that there was going to be a, are you ready for this? Their words, not mine, re-emergence or deliberate release of a beta coronavirus. Walk us through this. What does that mean? And what does that tell us about this company? And what do we need to know about this company? Well, so let's go into the history of Moderna a little bit. It's a very interesting company and it has backed up its Brinks truck full of armed robbers to the treasury and has been robbing the US taxpayer for a long time. This company in its 2019 financial statement said that it had $187 million of grant funding from the federal government and from foundations that had been untapped. This is a company that presented itself as in financial straits but we find evidence of hundreds of millions of dollars of grant funding coming from places like DARPA and NIH and NIAID and other places where the company not only is not producing things, but this is the weird thing. Moderna is not a company that has actually had a history of financial success. It's been in the market since 2010 when it started. It started, as you know, with this very interesting alliance between a venture capital firm and a group of researchers in the Northeast here in the US. And they just came together and saw an opportunity to exploit a technology they did not own. And that's a big statement, but listen to why I'm making it. There's a company called um, uh, Arbutus um, Therapeutics. And Arbutus has a patent and the patent number, and you know I'm a stickler for details. So the patent number for anybody who wants to look at it, 8 million 058069, that patent issued to Arbutus is a patent on the, the lipid nanoparticle technology. And, and I'll give you a very simple way to think about that. That's a, it's a complex term, but 
think of think of a lipid nanoparticle as the envelope in which you put the messenger RNA to get into the cell. It's it's the delivery mechanism for the vaccine compound, and that patent, which was issued to Arbutus on the lipid nanoparticle, which is is critical for the Moderna vaccine, was actually not Moderna's to use. So. Here's a company who in their 130 plus patents have never acknowledged the federal government's support for their research, despite the fact that almost all of it's derived from the federal government. Here's a company that in so doing has violated the federal law over 130 times because the Bayh-Dole Act, which put in motion the law that said that if you get federal funding, you have to disclose it in your patent applications. They have not complied with that law on any of the applications germane to this vaccine or any of the other four that they have candidate trials for. So here's a company who's been compulsively breaking the law. They are not only breaking the law, but they're using someone else's platform technology, the enabling technology without license. And that's the company that Anthony Fauci picks to be the front runner for the preferred Operation Warp Speed vaccine. You sit there going, well, hold on a minute. Why are all of these funds flowing to an, a company that has compulsively been an illegal operator for nearly a decade? Anytime that happens, we smell a rat by evidence of the rat droppings, not because we have a hunch about rats. And whose responsibility is it to discover this and prosecute this, you know, from a, from a legal standpoint? Well, here's the funny thing. There's a thing called the Federal Acquisitions Regulations or the FAR. And inside the FAR, there is a requirement for every federal agency to make sure that the companies they work with represent and warrant that they are legally able to produce, manufacture and sell whatever they're selling to the government. There is no question that the National Institutes of Health, there is no question that DARPA, and there is no question that NIAID has had the ability to look at the evidence and see that this company is violating the law. And despite the evidence being in place since the first patent application that predated the foundation, by the way, of Moderna by about four months. So Moderna's first patent exists before Moderna exists. In every one of the subsequent patents, they failed to disclose the federal funding. And as a result, every agency who has given them a contract has been violating contract rules under sections 27 and 52 of the federal acquisitions uh, regulation. Quote unquote, it's a fraud. Um, basically, Mike Moderna has been giving this carte blanche endorsement to Anthony Fauci. And you've also said, I think, quote, Moderna and Jones, hundreds of millions of dollars of funding, allegiance and advocacy from Fauci and his NIAID. Um, there's some link there, you think, which is why he, he, he fights so hard to give them the funding and is also still pushing for this vaccine. Is that, is that what's unwritten yeah, let's, here? Let's, let's take a little journey into organized crime for a minute. Um, I, I, uh, I spent a lot of time working in the Pacific and in Africa with mining companies that, that love to do what are called bump and dump routines, where they, they'll, they'll pump up a stock, they'll inflate it, they'll bump the market price up. And then usually they have positions on both the buy and the sell side. And you understand this from the capital markets where people short stocks and do all sorts of other things. The fact of the matter is this company has been playing a very, very poor version of what organized crime has done for a long time, which is, you know, you, you pretend like you have something, you pitch it, you get emotional investment to start running up the stock price, you start profit taking. And, and in fact, what you're doing is stealing. You're stealing from the public. Now, the, the, the beautiful thing about this kind of theft is that it's done with people in suits, usually at trading desks and and as a result, it doesn't look like a crime, but it is a crime. You know, when Anthony Fauci goes out and starts talking about Gilead Sciences Remdesivir or the, the mRNA vaccine from, from the, the producers of, of kind of the latest, greatest from Moderna, the fact of the matter is he is doing 
a part of the puzzle which makes that racket work. You, you pump a thing, you inflate the perceived value of it, and then you profit take while the rest of the market is listening to what's been said and they're continuing to push the stock price up. Now, the CEO of Moderna has made it abundantly clear that all of their stock sales were you know, pre-arranged and pre-ordered, but I'm gonna ask you a question. If you went public in 2018, if you went public in 2018 and, and you didn't have $1.4 billion of new, fresh, non-dilutive money from the treasury, if, if you went public in 2018, wouldn't you hold on to your stock because you knew it was going to go up? Because this is not what was in your pro forma. This was not in what was in your S1 filing. You actually got a better deal than you thought you had. So as an executive, if you really believed that the truth of your success was in fact going to live out, you would have canceled your stock orders. You would have canceled those sale orders, but they didn't do that. They let Anthony Fauci pump their stock up and then they exited and they're taking money off the table while the rest of the world is being duped. In your opinion, how does this play out? Does this get pumped and dumped and vaccines never appear and this is just a story of tears for the public investors? Well, so I think there's a couple scenarios, Brian. I think the one that we know is that Moderna knew about the Arbutus problem. In fact, they knew about it was a big enough problem that they went to the Patent Trial Appeals Board this summer to try to get Arbutus's patent invalidated. Much to their chagrin, it didn't work. And in July, the Patent Trials Appeals Board came back and said, sorry guys, Arbutus patent really is there and it really does stand. And obviously they sent the spin machine in motion. Moderna said, well, we think we've got workarounds and we think we've got all that kind of stuff. But their market cap took a 9% hit when people found out that maybe there was trouble brewing. And 9% is a meaningful market cap hit. You know that. Mm. Um, now imagine what happens in the following scenario. And this is my actual really serious concern. I think Anthony Fauci is going to paint President Trump into a corner. I think President Trump has been pushing very hard to get a vaccine into the hands of therapies around the country and potentially around the world. And I think that Moderna and Anthony Fauci know very good and well everything I'm saying. And I think that there is a reasonable possibility that they did something which this interview is going to spoil. And that's why I'm happy to do this interview. I think it's a real bummer to find out that on or about October, let's say 20 to 30, when the FDA is pressured into approving the vaccine, I think it'd be a real bummer if Arbutus filed an infringement motion to actually block the sale of the technology, thereby making it look like President Trump was an abject failure on the vaccine front. It wouldn't surprise me one bit if Anthony Fauci and Moderna have premeditated an embarrassment. So they, now, they might kill the whole market cap just so Trump doesn't get elected. That could be one of their agendas. You know, weirder huh. things have happened. And look at who Anthony Fauci has been working with and for. The fact of the matter is he has been running an antitrust violation collusive practice for the last now 18 years around the industrial complex of coronavirus. And, and by the way, that's not an allegation, that's a certainty. The definition of antitrust is interlocking directorates. The definition of antitrust is the fact that you price fix solutions. Remember, NAID is a beneficiary and the buyer because they all report up to the US Department of Health and Human Services. This is the definition of antitrust violations. And Anthony Fauci is the chief architect, the conspirator in chief of price fixing, of manipulation, of interlocking directorates, of seeking foreign aid to, inter to interfere with interstate commerce. Everything that's defined under the Sherman and the Clayton Act, Anthony Fauci is the architect of it. So it, would it be any surprise if a guy who's actively participating in active crimes against the United States also could be manipulated to have an influence on an election.
Does that sound like an October surprise that's far-fetched? Who is supposed to prosecute this crime that you're describing? Or if things go, maybe as we hope, who is watching this right now that can say, oh, we're gonna go get him? Is that the Department of Justice? Is it another entity or is it complicated? So you'll recall from old cases like the tobacco settlement and from a bunch of the environmental litigation of the past two or three decades, that technically U.S. attorneys, which are a part of the Department of Justice structure, have the ability to bring actions in this kind of realm. The Department of Justice under Attorney General Barr has the not only ability, but has the legal responsibility to actually focus in on violations of antitrust that include both the domestic problem we have, which is the interstate commerce issues and all of the interlocking directorates and all that kind of stuff, and the Section 802 domestic terrorism out of the Patriot Act, the domestic terrorism issues. And the reason why I bring that up is very simple. The definition of domestic terrorism includes anyone who takes on actions meant to coerce a population, intimidate a population, and procure from the government advantage. That's actually an act of domestic terror defined under Section 802 of the Patriot Act. There is no question that what has happened is in fact an act of domestic terrorism as the definition sets forth. When Andrew Cuomo gets in front of the camera and says, you're gonna to have to tell me which 26,000 people aren't gonna get ventilators because I need 30,000. He's trying to influence a government. It turns out New York never needed 30,000 ventilators. They never even got close to using all 12,000 that were made available through all kinds of other things or the 1,200 that they actually had. They never needed 30,000 ventilators. They never had 24,000 people who were deprived access to medical care. But Andrew Cuomo engaged in, by definition, under the Patriot Act, domestic terrorism by seeking to coerce a population and influence a government to take its resources. The fact of the matter is the Department of Justice and William Barr have a moral and legal obligation, and I would raise the stakes. This is existential to the democracy. This is about whether or not we have separation of powers or whether in fact we can sell 100% of the United States to a corporatocracy which is violating laws that a century ago were so odious that we passed the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act specifically to make this not happen. Yeah, and that's why you've said, quote, COVID-19 was a branded campaign of domestic terrorism, unquote. That's correct. And that is your point of making this, and I just had a flashback to Al Capone, they got him for tax evasion. So if people don't remember Al Capone, you know, gangster, uh, violating all the prohibition laws, led to a lot of crime, murder, et cetera. But they didn't get him on any of those charges. They had to get him on tax evasion. So this seems to me to be the David Martin equivalent of that. Am I, am I getting your, your drift here? You are exactly where I have been going. This is, you know, at the end of the day, criminals have the ability to do flagrant acts. And the more flagrant, the more incredulous the populace is. We just sit back, you know, Plato talks about this in the Republic. He talks about the fact that if, you know, and I'm gonna paraphrase using Eddie Izzard, the British comedian, you know, if you kill one person, it's murder. If you kill two people, it's serial murder. If you kill five, people start going, oh, wow, that's kind of, that's kind of unusual. And you, you know, maybe need to be examined under a microscope. But if you kill a million people, People almost celebrate with incredulity. How on earth did you pull that off? And Eddie Izzard does a really cute bit about, you know, do you have a death, death, death tea, death breakfast? And he does a really cool sketch about it. But Plato talks about sometimes when, when crimes get so egregious that the humanity that's inside of all of us sits back and goes, we actually can't believe somebody would have done that. Is it really possible that the Imperial College of London and the Center for Disease Control and the University of Washington and Johns Hopkins University, that those three organizations could actually work together to bring 40 million people into unemployment? Like, that's Stalin-esque, right? We, we can't even wrap our head around the scale of it. 
And then the idea that that could be architected by a Bill Gates, Dr. Elias operating as the extension of Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, China Center for Disease Control, interlocking directorate on the global pandemic, uh, preparedness monitoring board. You know, can we actually believe that three people could have architected this thing? And the answer is, we're told that's too incredible to believe. That's, that's just too incredible to believe. But every single historical account of organized crime, of organized genocide, of organized mass extinctions of populations and livelihoods have always had two or three people who are their architects. Let me ask you a question, David. What do you think ultimately are the motivations in this scenario, assume it's true, of a Bill Gates and a Fauci? Do they believe somehow they are doing good? Is this a eugenics play? Is it a money play? Is it a power play? Or is it just the, is it, what is it? So I made the statement in Plandemic, and I would say this in echoing that comment all the time. I think that humanity is fundamentally good. I think it's fundamentally not broken. And I think that what happens is that a number of people start making a series of incremental expedient decisions in the moment without considering the consequence. I think that when Ralph Barrick started putting coronaviruses together in his lab in the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, I think he really was just asking some interesting questions about coronavirus. And I think when he figured out he could amplify certain parts of the pathogenicity of those viruses, he thought, oh, I wonder what else you could do with it. And I think each one of the steps that he took and each one of the funding checks that NIAID Anthony Fauci wrote, each one of them, probably in isolation, Brian, was dangerously close to almost innocent. Where it's just like, oh yeah, that'd be the logical next question you could ask. But nobody ever put a break on the process and said, hey, let's pause for a moment. Let's see where we are. Let's see how many of these little expediencies have led us to a place we shouldn't be, right? When, when the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in 2014 and 15 impanels an ethics committee, which they did, to say, let's allow the Wuhan virus, which was taken from minors who actually had all the COVID symptoms in 2013, right? When, when the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Ethics Committee says, yeah, let's go ahead and take that virus and let's combine it with some other coronaviruses and see what happens. Somebody somewhere should have gone, hey guys, the NIH said this was unethical and possibly illegal. Maybe we should not ask the next question of how bad can we make coronavirus? But nobody asked that question because all along, no one was asking the questions. And that's why I say in the film, and that's why I say in this conversation, this is a failure of each and every one of our humanities where we see the little incremental erosion and we go, well, it's not that big of a deal. But the problem is the cumulative effect of all of those expedient decisions is absolutely horrific. And what we as a population aren't doing, and by the way, part of the reason why I'm so enthusiastic to be on your show is you are the exception. You're getting the word out there. You and Dell and some other folks are getting the word out there that says, you can't let ignorance be the defense for it. You know, if you don't care, I get it. But if you don't care because you couldn't have known, that's a problem. So when you have these conversations, that becomes super important. And the question then is, Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates and Ralph Baer, these three people, without question, are in fact violating laws. We, we absolutely know the laws they're violating. Now, they may have a justification for violating those laws. They may have all kinds of rationales for it. But under the legal structure of the way the law is written, they're violating laws. That's a statement of fact. Now, if they have a supervening moral impulse that says, we're breaking this law because it's in the better interest of humanity, that's a conversation that I'd even be willing to have, right? Because laws change, social values change, 
I'm down with that. That's what a democratic process is about. But I can tell you that intent is in fact a function of whether or not you have integrity. If you want to tell me that it's time for us to change how we do public health and how we look at the world, let's have an open dialogue about it. But in that open dialogue, let's not lie. Let's not silence opposition. Let's not make sure that anybody who states anything that is even remotely controversial is silenced because that belies what really is motivating us. Evil needs darkness and it suffers in the light. And guess what? This is light. And just because of this interview, we screwed up somebody's plans because they were hoping the October surprise would be a surprise. But I just screwed it up. Two questions or problems there that I can see, and I'm sure I'm only seeing the first order of this. One is funding my pharmaceutical companies for re-elections. The two is the fact that this disease has been weaponized for political purposes, which means now it's being used as a weapon, right? To win or lose an election and then yep. to try to gain influence after that. Those are the two that I see. Of course, I, I'm playing checkers, not chess here. But, wow. but and, and, and not that either one of those is, is, is okay when it comes to you know, playing roulette with the health of a country or even breaking the law. But what do you see with both of those two? Well, I think that you know, many people in the public health arena are, are famously saying, you know, Dave, you don't understand this is a real thing and real people are getting sick and all this kind of stuff. And, and to that, my simple response is that if you didn't want to make it political and if you didn't want to make it a tool to be weaponized, then why couldn't you tell the truth about any part of the story? Remember that this story has been a lie since the beginning. And propaganda, as you well know, is in fact always meant to influence public opinion and public opinion influence is about who's in power. So, so the agencies through which we should be getting facts and information pre-politicized this to the point where we couldn't have a non-political conversation, right? If you question the official narrative, you must be pro-Trump and you must be anti-Democrat, right? That's, that's absolutely ludicrous. In fact, once upon a time, I remember a Democratic Party that actually thought that liberty mattered. You know, now you couldn't get a more draconian set of interventions, but the fact is that it was weaponized. And then it turned into, as you very well know, it turned into a, let's make it about a vaccine. That wasn't anti-vaxxers message. That was governors and state health officials getting in front of the camera and saying, you can't take your mask off, you can't travel until there's a vaccine. That was politicizing science. We put all of our political eggs in the basket that said, we have to have a vaccine before we can return to humanity. Well, sorry, that's not how science works. Science says, let's figure out how to solve this problem and let's find the best way to solve it, whether that's a therapy, whether it's a vaccine, whatever it is, let's actually allow open, free, and fair inquiry to tell us what the best approach is. But that hasn't happened. So to your point, this has been weaponized at every turn to be a political tool, not just at the US level, but it's a geopolitical tool because it's also a way to kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, end the trade war with China with no one ever admitting defeat. Look at the fact that over the last several months, China's technology trade has increased with the rest of the world 32%, while our economy has constricted by about the same amount. Who's winning and who's losing the trade war? Well, we already have our answer. But the good news is nobody has to blame a leader for it because now we, can, we have this wonderful contrivance of a pandemic, which never met the definition of pandemic when it started and still hasn't met the definition of pandemic now. And we now have a way to get allegedly out of a trade war that no one was. Quick question, the vaccine narrative, is that something that was engineered by Fauci and Gates or were other people complicit in that because 
it, it allowed them to go ahead and weaponize the issue or to come to a conclusion or to exert control? Well, so once again, we have to look at the evidence. The evidence is NAID and Anthony Fauci's organization has been betting on vaccine for a long time. He's been very, very upset, as has the Center for Disease Control, been very upset that for 70 years, we've been trying to figure out how to force people into flu vaccines. And the majority of people have seen through that as total BS. And the majority of people haven't fallen for it. And they have actually realized that the billions of dollars of public investment in vaccine technology, which unfortunately, the public doesn't embrace for a simple reason. The public doesn't embrace it because the industry refuses to accept liability and refuses to actually do proper clinical trials. If either one of those things were addressed, we wouldn't have a problem. It's even interesting, Brian, most of your viewers won't know, but Moderna in its own vaccine trials before COVID-19 actually had placebo controls. Their own data, their own methodology. But Fauci suspended that for COVID-19. That's putting all your bets on a, we're gonna find a vaccine that we're gonna force everybody to take, regardless of its safety, regardless of its efficacy, and regardless of the virulence of the thing we're allegedly trying to cheat, which by the way, at last count, has over 3,000 subclade variations. So we're not treating SARS coronavirus. You think influenza vaccine is bad where last year's doesn't do this year's vaccine and next year won't do last year's vaccine. Well, with SARS coronavirus, it's far worse than influenza. There are more variations and the likelihood you will get vaccinated for the one that's gonna get you is zero. The vision of the public of a vaccine, I always used to make fun of that movie Contagion, which I forced myself to watch in March of this year and watch Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, dying on the kitchen floor, is that at the end of that movie, there's this, there's this, um, this uh, really beautiful, saline nasal spray that once you put it in your nose, everything is okay. Oh, you're fine. It has a hundred, a seemingly 100% effective rate with no side effects and it moves on. Right. So even, even a movie that was praised for its accuracy, that one, it really duped us. And so in our mind, it literally is a, a vaccine is a panacea. And so when they mention this word to us, I don't know, because of our narrative as humans, we think, oh, that's the thing that's just gonna save us all. And no one thinks anything about what you've just said where there could be all the variations, where it not be effective, where it might have side effects. And, and therein lies one of the problems in the narrative or one of the benefits in their narrative. So, so Brian, one of the things that I like to remind people is one of the most misquoted Supreme Court cases in the United States is Jacobson, which is the one that allegedly says that states have the power to vaccinate a population against their will. Right, Dershowitz was here and Dershowitz quotes that. We, he spoke to us about yeah, it as yeah. well. And, and the funny thing is, that case actually is about a civil fine. It has nothing to do with a vaccine. Jacobson didn't want to pay the $5 fine. But what's important is that the justices in that case, if any of the lawyers who opine on its relevance would actually read the opinion, God forbid, if you actually read the opinion, what you find out is the justices said something which is actually really fascinating. They made it abundantly clear that vaccine was a belief system. Now, you know that in the U.S. Constitution, we have a thing called the Establishment Clause, which basically says that you can't be compelled to believe something. The state cannot compel you to believe something, which means the state has an evidentiary requirement. I don't understand why constitutional lawyers don't take up the vaccine issue, not as a matter of science, because it isn't a matter of science, it's a matter of belief. And we have decided that we have, to your point, we have this panacea, we have the savior, which is this wonderful thing that we're gonna get injected with. And suddenly we're gonna have no SARS coronavirus problem, just like suddenly we'll have no influenza or no polio or, oh, hold on a second, we are having all those things. Um, but, but we are told this, this belief mechanism. And here's the problem. The problem is I'm not anti the principle of vaccination. To your point, it's very interesting and very compelling engineering science but you cannot absolve a company of civil and criminal liability, which now through the emergency declarations, we've done for every company that's producing diagnostic kits and therapies and anything else. Under the emergency use authorization, every company is getting to run carte blanche without any liability for their willful negligence. And every state that continues to promulgate 
the rules of preserving this crazy emergency declaration is doing so so that their pet manufacturing projects in their pet states have the ability to run with impunity. The fact is that what we should be doing is we should be saying, put your money where your mouth is. If your science can withstand scrutiny on safety and efficacy, I'll be the first one in the line to try it out. But I will, if you also give me treble damages for your willful and negligent misuse of science. That's my deal. My deal is I'm at the front of the line. I'm seriously at the front of the line to advance the cause of humanity if the other side agrees to treble damages, if they covered anything up, if they manipulated anything. And the reason why I can make that statement is no one will take my bet. I took my son to his first day of school today in, in England, he's four years old. And we got to the school and um, I mean, like me, he's a bit introverted, right? I mean, probably worse than me. And uh, he doesn't want to go to school. Let's just be honest, all right? So my mom and him are taking him to school. We get there. The teachers have visors over their heads, all right? So if you weren't freaked out already, the teachers look like aliens. Great. Next, they make mommy and daddy put on rubber gloves before I went into the classroom. Rubber gloves. I was like, are you serious? And of course, make me put on a mask. So he's looking at me freaking out. And all you can see from dad is I have no emotions, right? Yep. And we're trying to drag him into this class and everyone's lining up to do that. And they're trying to sp spray the, the stuff on his hands. Needless to say, it was a very, very bad first hour at school. And, um, and, and this is just a small sliver of what the society's becoming, but I don't want him growing up in a world where whenever you see another human, I think they're dirty, they're gonna infect me. I'm dirty, I'm going to infect them. Um, I'm wearing this mask because the government told us what to do and they're gonna tell me next tomorrow what to do and the next day what to do. And we're all in this fear state. Like, yeah. I, that's not what I want, but that's what we're in right now. Yeah, and you know, Brian, one of the things that, that I remind people is, I, I grew up in a very religious environment. Um, you know, I was, I was constantly reminded of being wrong I was constantly reminded of how humans are sinful and broken and all kinds of other things. I mean, the, the narrative being, being quite persistent. And, and through that entire process, I can understand how this happens. I can understand what happens when you psychologically imprint there's something wrong with you into the gestalt of another person or a community or, or a country. Um, the fact of the matter is, it took me my 53 years of life to even start unwinding some of those effects. And I would love to tell you that I'm all, you know, I'm all out the other side. The truth is these things imprint for a very long time. And to your point, those little moments of four-year-olds or six-year-olds or, or high schoolers or whoever it is, those little moments aren't little moments. They are huge, huge, huge psychological and cognitive imprints. And that's why I'm so passionate about making sure that we end this thing before we lose more of our humanity, because it is so vital. Part of the reason why I celebrate Mickey's efforts, you know, he's a dad, I'm a dad, you're a dad. You know, we actually live in a world where we think about the implications of what our children are experiencing and what they're ultimately going to inherit. And the fact is it's on us as parents to stand for their future. Maybe you can talk about how this came about, um, you know, uh, what people who haven't seen the movie might might not know about the backbone of the movie, how you got involved, and if any of what I said is, is fair or correct. Yeah, listen, so, so in 1998, uh, MCAM, which once upon a time was Mosaic Collateral Asset Management, a company I started in October 31st, 1998, um, we were set up to, do something very unique in the global marketplace. And that was that since the 1800s, specifically since 1805, the intangible assets of a company, and that means patents and copyrights and trademarks and contracts and things like that, intangible assets are not part of what are listed traditionally as bankable assets for those corporations. And in the late 90s, Brian, you'll remember, companies didn't have the ability to go for traditional lending anymore because they were leasing their buildings, they were leasing their physical equipment, 
they had no real assets. And so we were in a world where equity markets were really the only option for most companies. And so our company was started in tandem with a number of international financial organizations and government organizations to set up a way to allow the intangible assets of a company to be used as collateral to reopen the credit markets. That's what we did. So when people wonder how on earth do you have all this information from over 168 countries and, and you know, our databases, by the way, go back to 1786. So we, we quite literally, if it was an idea that moved across a border since 1786, the likelihood is we have the artifact of it. That's an amazing statement to make that, yeah. you know, the, the 80 plus million patents, um, you know, billions of contracts, we have that information. That is actually stuff that lives inside of the data servers that we manage and we update that every day. So if something moved today, we see it. And there was a, a point, I, I, think, I, thought, I think it was a point you made on another video that I watched of you by, by saying, and again, it's obvious to you, but it might be not obvious to a lot of people, is that most of that information isn't digitized and even right. a, a smaller fraction is even searchable. And so right. I think most people, they go to Google, they type it in. If they don't see it on the first page, it doesn't exist. And right. maybe you can explain how that's, that's completely not the case and why then that makes what you do even more important. Yeah, well, that's great, Brian. I mean, Google, as, as people should call it, is an opinion curation engine. It's not a search engine. It's an opinion curation engine. In other words, I buy what I want you to see. So I, the holder of information, want you, Brian, to think or see a particular thing. So I make it abundantly clear that on page one, you see what I want you to see. You know, this is not a library. This is not the Dewey Decimal System where you flip through cards and went to the stacks and, and found out that you didn't know that you were interested in the book that was next to the book that you thought you were looking for. That's not this. This is actually somebody buying your mind control. It's a paid and for narrative. Will, yeah, Google, Google is not a search engine, never has been a search engine. It has always been an opinion curation engine. And that just means you are being essentially suckered into a message that you are unwillingly consuming in this weird exchange where somebody wants to control your mind and you're playing along. Was it hard for Mickey to get you to sit down and film this? How did that all happen? No, so let's start with Mickey's team at Elevate is fabulous. They, they are super professional. You know this, you've interacted with them. They're fabulous individuals. Mickey and his family, and I really want to honor the fact that he has a family. They've paid some pretty dear price for you know him getting the message out there. Um, Mickey is an amazing human being. He reached out. He did something that I profoundly respect, and that is that he didn't believe a word I said. He started off by just going, if what you're saying is true, this is so big and I can't believe that no one else is saying it. So I'm gonna start with the, it can't be true. But then as you, and he shared this in your interview, um, you know, they started looking at it and lo and behold, the documents were there and all the information was there and it started adding up and so when he asked me to come out to California, I felt like I was going to a brother's house, right? Just, he, he, was, he was very hospitable. Their team was great. Um, and, and so the entire process of working with Elevate was fabulous. And they did something, by the way, Brian, that I think really deserves some credit. Um, Mickey took a lot of flack for the first film. Um, and... You know, anytime somebody tells a story, a lot of people forget that it's a story, right? So the way Judy conveyed the information that she had, um, that's her story. And, and I think we all need to respect the fact that the way in which people express their first person narrative of their experience is theirs. And, you know, and I think that there were things that some individuals criticized where a sentence or a statement made in a particular context, if taken out of context, could have been, you know, misleading or whatever. So he got a lot of flack for that. And so what, what we committed to was I wasn't going to get away with anything. 
I couldn't make a statement that wasn't backed by chapter and verse, show me the document, show me the correspondence, show me the source material, show me everything else. And then even after I showed it to him, he sent that off to make sure I hadn't come up with the material. Now, these are federal records, so I don't know who he sent them to and you know whoever they were, I'm sure saw them for the first time. But the fact is he did the right thing, right? Rather than feeling like he was a victim of the first film, he said, I'm gonna raise my standard and you're gonna pay the price for it. Tell me about that original premise of the film because I think it's really kind of what cracks open the whole yeah. piece. And it's it's how we first learn about you. I mean, the you know, and I don't want to spoil the movie, but you know, again, it, it introduces kind of event two hundred one. But then you kind of set the preference, uh, the premise, which shapes the whole film. And maybe you can just talk about that. And, and yeah, we'll keep it really simple. I won't spoil it for the whole film, but let's get the simple facts. Number one, April twenty fifth, two thousand three, the CDC lied to the American people and to the world. And they lied when they filed the patent saying that they could patent the SARS coronavirus isolated from humans. That was a lie. And it was a violation of the United States 35 U.S. Code Section 101. So let's just get it out there. The CDC lied and the CDC broke the law. They filed a patent on nature, which they cannot do. And then they lied about it by saying that the reason they did it was to make sure no one could commercialize SARS coronavirus. That wasn't just a lie. They had the intent to commercialize it. And let me back that one up. Because in 2005, the patent office told them that they couldn't have their patent. They actually rejected the CDC patent. The CDC didn't want to hear that their patent couldn't be rejected and so they decided to appeal and they sent new information in and they did all sorts of other hand-wringing exercises and they failed to convince the patent examiner and once again they got the patent rejected in a final rejection saying you can't have the patent. The Center for Disease Control, if they wanted that virus information to be available in the public for research and not for commercial use, could have stopped right there, hit print, said, we're making it available, nobody gets to patent it, it's now in the public domain, and by doing that, they would have emancipated the ability to research coronavirus to the point where we could actually detect how much is circulating in the population. But they doubled down. They doubled down, and in 2007, they paid to have the examiner at the patent office overruled to issue that patent all the while lying to the American people saying that this was being done so nobody could control the commercial interest of coronavirus. Now, the reason I'm saying they lied is because if you actually look at their own submissions to the United States Patent Office, they fought to maintain the commercial control of coronavirus while their spokesperson was out in front of all the media saying, we're just trying to help, we're just trying to help, we're just trying to make this available. Fundamental patent law tells you that if you publish something with an enabling disclosure, no one ever gets the patent. If they were serious, if they were telling the truth, they could have hit print, but they didn't. They locked it up. And why did they lock it up? Because it turns out that there was a internal Department of Health and Human Services fight about infectious diseases. Because in 2005, everybody at NIH realized that DARPA was getting in the game. And the Defense Advanced Research Program was going to start shoveling a lot of money towards infectious diseases. Ralph Barrick in 2005 started talking about how the coronavirus was this wonderfully manipulatable virus, which you could make chimeric con combinations and you could make recombinant combinations and you could make synthetic versions, which amplify different attributes of the virus. And DARPA started funding it. And it turns out that the CDC wanted to have a seat at the table and their patent gave them that seat to control the cash flow of coronavirus, the industry. Now, I don't care how many people hear that statement. I'm going to have fact checkers who then say, well, Dave, you say that their patent was illegal, 
but it wasn't until 2013 when Myriad Genetics had their patent on a gene ruled invalid by the Supreme Court and ruled that patents on genes were illegal. Little tiny problem, once again, with lawyers who do not read Supreme Court opinions. The Supreme Court specifically said in 2013, and I quote, we have long held that patents on nature are illegal. <laughs> long held. They didn't make up the law in 2013. The law was made up last time, uh, last time I checked, that part of the law was amended in 1988. So patents on nature were illegal. The CDC violated the law. They entered into this whole scam in a criminal conspiracy and then brought all of the co-conspirators in on the racket. Funding sources, NIH, NIAID, and then when things got too hot in the kitchen in 2012 and 13, when the NIH said, hey, we need a gain of function moratorium because we think there's some things that are going off the rails here. What did they do? They took the US taxpayer dollar and they offshored the research. And in 2013, between 2013 and 2015, Dr. Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and the collaborating researchers under Zheng Li Shi at Wuhan Institute of Virology started doing a chimeric and synthetic composition of SARS coronavirus with the Wuhan virus number one, which is the closest analog to what's called SARS-CoV-2. They started messing with it between 2013 and 2015, and Anthony Fauci wrote the checks to do it. At no point do we see the CDC objecting to patent infringement. At no point do we see anything other than the CDC complicit with the research, complicit with the researchers, and making sure that not only are they interacting with each other, but to just round out the interlocking directorate problem that we've talked about before, a member of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill leadership actually sits on the CDC foundation board as if illegality didn't matter at all. These are the facts. And the fact is that the CDC, the NIH and NIAID conspired to defraud taxpayers, conspired to restrain trade and conspired to make it abundantly clear that they controlled the coronavirus narrative and they did so even in the face of the 2013 declaration by the Supreme Court that said that it was illegal to have the patent they held. What ultimately happened in China? Was something released? Was it an accident? You know, and what happened in the other parts of the world? What, what is your thoughts? Well, yeah, so, so here's a tiny problem. The, the situation was set up for what I like to refer to as plausible deniability. Um, you have on the one hand, you have um, the, the lovely ability for the U.S. and China to both point to each other and say, you did it, and you did it. And the fact of the matter is, we did it, right? There, there is no question that by 2015, we had actually seen a joint U.S.-Chinese publication that anticipated the variations that are now SARS coronavirus 2. So the, the reason that we don't have a real good answer to the question in the public media is because media is asking the wrong question. They say, did China do it? And China goes, no. And the U.S. goes, well, well, China goes, well, did the U.S. do it? And the U.S. goes, no. And the answer is, nobody's asking the right question, which is, did you do it together? And the answer is, yes. But nobody asks that question. So let's put it out there. The fact of the matter is, this was actually done as a joint exercise. Now, that's a statement I can make provable by papers by grant applications and by patent applications. The next corollary to that, which is where we leave the reservation of fact, and then we enter into the world of conjecture. And let me make it abundantly clear, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm entering in the world of conjecture. I think that the Chinese government and the US government were in a trade war from which neither one of them had a path to extricate themselves. I think there was no way that you were going to get an end to what was going on because we are at a systemic, global, geopolitical and geoeconomic transition of power. And anytime that happens, whoever is the incumbency knows that they don't want to lose the incumbency and they know somebody else is going to take it. And that's always an awkward situation. 
at the end of the Second World War, or towards the end of the Second World War, we had Bretton Woods, which made the US dollar the trading dollar, despite the fact that the German mark and, and the British pound were far more attractive currencies to use because the US dollar hadn't even been around that long. So these, these kinds of changes happen and they happen during war and they happen during large scale transitions. Um, in the case of the Bretton Woods Agreement, they happened around the convergence of the end of the Second World War and the rise of petroleum as a national and international trading platform. So, so these things happen. But the problem that we had going into 2018-2019 is we were beating our chest in the U.S. about how important trade was for us. And China was beating its chest about how important trade was. And the problem was we were going into this mutually assured destruction point of no, no clear winner, no clear loser. And the fact of the matter is we needed to have something in the wings to blame for the transition. If you think for a moment that the premier of China, or if you think for a moment that the president of the United States was gonna go, you know what, I've thought about it, you're right. That was never gonna happen. Now, China for years has been devaluing its currency. It's been devaluing its treasury holdings. It officially marked down its US treasury holdings several years ago. Like we know that they have been shorting the future of the US. And we know that we've been exposed to a single point failure trading risk with China for a long time. In fact, that was started in 1971 when the Nixon administration started liberalizing trade and currency policy and so forth and so on. So we've known that this day was coming. If you go back and look at US trade documents from 1986, we knew that there was going to be a problem of this past three years creation where China would finally overtake a number of US industries and a number of US technologies. We knew it was coming. It's been on the horizon for a long time, but nobody had a plan on how to do a smooth transition, which means you need to have an event. And an event can be anything, but it would be really convenient if you could conscribe the entire world into the event, which is exactly what the United States represented by NAID Anthony Fauci and the Center for Disease Control China represented by Dr. Gao did in September when they planned a global pandemic preparedness exercise, which had to be done by September 2020. When they planned that, my assertion is that was an act of war. That was an act of war perpetrated not by one country against another country. It was an act of war perpetrated by a corporate industrial complex that decided that the governments that they had acquired through influence, through lobbying, through everything else, wasn't playing ball anymore and they needed to assert power over all of them. And the fact of the matter is, if you look at who's been the winners, you can't point to a country that's been the winners, but you can point to corporations that have been the winners. And if you really wanna know probably who funded the whole exercise, there's probably a pretty good short list to start with. What does the world look like two years from now in, uh, in September 2022, in your opinion? Well, you and I are talking about what a world transformation occurred when the incumbent structure got end run by a human and civilization led organization that busted the current monopoly on power that actually was dual party systems funded by corporations. You and I have a conversation about what it's like to now live in a world where freedom of expression and freedom of thought is actually ensured and enshrined with the elections that we're about to have, where the individuals who are standing for election are placed on a very, very, very simple binary scale. Do you support the unbridled use of police powers, or do you support the fact that the 10th Amendment ends not with the powers reserved in the Constitution or for the federal government and the rest are for the state. The rest of the 10th Amendment 
says, and it ends most importantly with, or the people. Three very interesting words that the 10th Amendment has never seen exercised. Guess what we're going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about the 10th Amendment Party. We're going to be talking about the individuals that actually stand for the rights of free and unconstrained people operating at liberty. And we're going to look back on this moment and go, who would have thought it took that to get us there? You know, who would have thought that it took something so dramatic and so draconian to get us to finally wake up to that which was entrusted to us on the mountaintop just one hilltop away from where I'm sitting right now. When Thomas Jefferson and probably his slaves and his dinner guests sat around talking about what it was like to think of a world where maybe slavery was abolished or maybe people had liberties or maybe there weren't tyrant kings. You know, what if we revisited that mountaintop? And what if we had the new conversation that says, hey, we had a 230-year experiment. Some of it worked. Some of it didn't work. But the good news is we value the scientific method enough to evaluate the data. And the data says humans weren't the problem. Despots were. And we reclaim humanity once again. So it looks like a new political system is what you're saying that's coming from the people. No question. Okay. That's why the 10th Amendment was written. And that's why the 10th Amendment has been ignored by every governor because they stop at the state and they forget the people. It's very but the people are where the period is. And it's time for the people to actually take their role in the co-equal branch of the way in which the 10th Amendment envisioned our great country which is co-equal, the federal government, the state government, and are you ready for this? We the people. What happens to David Martin and his life now that this movie's over? What, is it, what does your future look like now? Well, you know, um, I, I, uh, I had a very interesting experience. I think, I think I communicated earlier. I grew up in a very religious environment and I found that um, one of the tragedies of being in a, in a community defined by right at the expense of everyone else being wrong is that um, the, the invitation to humanity starts with a very liberty friendly approach to saying that we need to tolerate a plurality of perspectives. One of the things that be, has become very clear, I happen to thankfully write a book just in time for the pandemic to set in so people can read while they're sitting at home called Lizards Eat Butterflies. And, and it's a book that specifically takes on belief systems and it takes on the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and about what we are and where our place is in the world. But what happens in my world is that, Brian, as I said to you, and I said to your producers before we got on the line, humanity is waiting for what is a narrative that was probably last written when Homer wrote the story of Orpheus. We all talk about the Odyssey and we all talk about the hero epic, but what we don't talk about is the Orpheus story. Because when Orpheus has failed in the securing of his wife and, and, and you know, he's, he's an abysmal failure because his wife was coming out of hell with him and he turned back and that curses her to have to go back every six months and all that kind of stuff. So he was an epic failure. And, and when he goes past the Rock of the Sirens in, in the story of, of the Orpheus hero journey, he's melancholy and he's sitting in the front of his boat and he's playing his lyre. And, and, and it says that his men rode past the Rock of the Sirens because they were following a sweeter song. You know, the, the coolest thing about where we are right now is what you're doing right now and what I'm doing right now is the sweeter song. This is where humanity is going. And we may feel in this moment where we're fighting against a bunch of odds and, and we're challenged by a lot of things, but every person at the oars is rowing in our direction. And we need to remember that humanity is rowing with us. Humanity is not rowing. 
with the incumbency. Humanity is not rowing to have more of their liberties stripped from them. Humanity is not rowing that direction. Humanity is listening to a sweeter song. And so the next for us is another day with you and another day with other conversations like this. And truly, the rising up of the best of us, where what we do is we commit to truth, we commit to integrity, we commit to a non-adversarial approach, and we actually have the ability to have respectful dialogue, where we honor those who got us here, right? I'm only talking to you because of the greatness of Mickey. And we need to be clear on, we're not standing as experts. We're standing on the shoulders of great people who brought our lives together. I only was talking to Mickey because of Matt and Matt was talking to me because of Danny and Danny was talking like we have the army of greatness. And what you are going to do, what I'm going to do and what those of us who are in positions where we have the ability to have a voice are going to do is we're just going to make that song so sweet that people row past the rock of the sirens and the ship doesn't break up.